turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start there this morning. Um, This past week, someone asked me, they said, uh, what is our greatest need? What is our greatest need? And the way that you answered that just off the cuff, a lot of times depends on your current context and your current situation and what you might be going through or experiencing in life. Like if you're in Ukraine right now, you might say that our greatest need is, is peace, right? If you might say that your greatest need is a, is, is a good job or, or a community or education or health. But as we look through scripture, we see a theme going throughout it. And that theme is that our greatest need is the gospel. Like our greatest need is to to know, to understand, and to believe, and to live in light of the good news about Jesus Christ. And as the church, we're meant meant to be a gospel-centered, gospel-shaped community. And if that's the case, that begs the question then, what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul summarizes the gospel for us. Look down there at verse number one. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are, are still alive, those Some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Look there at verse three and four. The key points of the gospel are this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. The key points of the gospel are the cross and the resurrection. And as as Christians, sometimes we, we can become so familiar with the accounts of the cross and the resurrection that we just skim past them or, or, or we lose sight of the beauty and the implications of them in our daily lives. Uh, recently, I had a, an eye appointment that came up and I went to the eye appointment and I went in and the, the eye doctor asked me, she's like, uh, uh, hey, how are you, how's your reading going? How are you seeing with your reading? And I'm like, Struggling a little bit, but it's all right. We're good. Don't need to do anything about it just yet. She goes, well, just for, just for my sake, why don't, we, why don't we look at it? And so she put the little thing up there, and she goes, can you read that? And I'm like, I don't see any words. She clicked it again. I'm like, maybe something's there. Clicked it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to talk really frankly with you. Like, you need to give it up. Like, it's time. It's time for you to get progressive lenses. And, and I realized in that moment that progressive lenses is just a way to sugarcoat that my eyes are old and I need bifocals. 
<laughs> but it sounds so much better when you say, oh, they're progressive lenses. So, so I got them. I started getting used to them, but it took me a couple months to get used to them. And it was just messing with my head because I, I have glasses because I can't see far away. And here's something that's like right in front of me and I can't see it. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. It's near, it's close. Like I should be able to see this. It's far away things I can't see. I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for this. I'm like, I think that's how the cross can be for Christians sometimes. Sometimes the, the closer things are, the more blurry or familiar they become. And over time, they can just get out of focus. But here's the thing. We can't afford to lose sight of the gospel. Right? The good news about Jesus is the, it's the heart of our faith. It's everything. Without it, we're lost. So today and next week, uh, we're going to do an eye exam in regards to the cross and next week, the resurrection. So today is our opportunity to just stop for a few minutes and reflect and be reminded of the tragedy and the beauty of Christ's death on the cross. So go ahead and turn left in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're gonna jump right into this account of the cross. Uh, and so that means that starting here, that we're not gonna be in the typical Palm Sunday passage. So, so the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city has already happened at this point. The, the Last Supper and Gethsemane have happened. Uh, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas and his disciples have deserted him and he's appeared before the Sanhedrin already and Peter has denied him. And here we are in chapter 27, and we are going to walk through the majority of this text and just remember. Verse 27, or I mean, sorry, chapter 27, verse 1. And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Skip down to verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, and he said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, Well, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Here's the thing. Um, innocent people protest. I'm a parent. I know this. <laughs> if you accuse one of your children of doing something that they did not do, you are going to hear about it. They're going to be like, listen, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I wasn't even in the house at the time. It was the middle child. It's always the middle child. <laughs> they are going to protest and you're going to hear adamantly that they are innocent. Jesus is innocent of wrongdoing. 
And yet he doesn't protest his innocence. And Pilate here, he's, he's confused that a, that a seemingly innocent man will not defend himself. And what we see happening is even here, there's a temptation for Jesus to try and avoid the cross. If he'll just declare his innocence, there's a chance he wouldn't go to the cross. But Jesus refuses to succumb to that temptation. He is not running from the cross. And in fact, here, he's fulfilling prophecy that was given 800 years prior in Isaiah 53, when it says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a, a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that it was, it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Listen to your wife, Pilate. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. This is so fascinating here, because you see, Jesus was on trial this fake trial. Jesus was on trial and being accused of insurrection, right? To be crucified, he had to be a rebel against Rome. He needed to be an insurrectionist, and he wasn't. But here's the thing, Barabbas is an insurrectionist, trying to overthrow Rome. And here the people really ultimately are saying, hey, release to us Barabbas the potential king that we want as opposed to the king that we need. And you should hear Old Testament echoes here. Remember the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and they're like, we reject God as our king, right? Give us a king of our own choosing. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves like that will help. <laughs> and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This one word, scourged. 
would have entailed being beaten with a leather whip that was probably filled with pieces of of bone and metal. This was such a horrible beating that the, the Jews limited the amount of lashes that you could have to 39. 39. The Romans, they didn't have a limit. This scourging would have been a a beating that was unimaginably horrible. It was meant to tear away at your, your body until the bones and internal organs were exposed. It was meant to take you to the brink of death and stop just short. And ultimately to soften you up for the execution that lay ahead. It was horrible. And Jesus here endures it. Verse 27, and then the soldiers of the, of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him and they said, hail king of the Jews. They spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put on his own clothes and they led him away to crucify him. I struggled the most with this part of this passage this week as I was preparing. I got so angry. I'm like, how could you? Like, he is the creator of the universe. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And now you tear him to pieces. And you mock him. And at one point I was just like, you just wait. One day you will bow before him. And as I was thinking about this and praying about it, like the Lord just impressed on me, like, do you realize, Nate, that in a way you do this every single day? I mock Jesus every time I think I can do life on my own. I mock Jesus every time I accuse him of not loving me enough and not giving me what I think I I need. I mock the king every time I assign to myself the role of king and I live like I'm the one on the throne, the king of my choosing. In that moment, I felt a, a shift of my anger, not with these soldiers, but with my own sin. Verse 32, and they went out and they, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. 
And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. As I went through this, I was like, that's it. I mean, that is the only description of what the crucifixion entailed in Matthew here. I'm like, why? Why is there no other details? And ultimately, I, I don't know why he didn't include them here. But maybe one of the reasons is because the people initially reading this were very familiar with the crucifixion. Like, they had seen crucifixion. They possibly knew people who had been crucified. They had lived their lives in fear of this Roman execution method. They were really aware of what it was. We, we aren't as much. And I think that's why it's important when we remember the cross that we remember exactly what this entailed. Uh, a crucifixion is horrific in ways that our 21st century Western suburban minds can hardly even wrap our heads around and imagine. It was cruel and humiliating and sadistically designed to put you on display while torturing you. It was meant to slowly kill you, but to keep you alive long enough, just long enough to, to beg for your death until ultimately you probably died from either blood loss or suffocation. And the birds ate your flesh, sometimes beginning before you were even dead. And all of this summarized in this one statement was a means of communicating to the world, don't mess with Rome. Caesar is king. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. Verse 37, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others and he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The irony of their mocking here is that if Jesus did come down, no one would be saved.
See, it's actually in his remaining on the cross and his subsequent resurrection that he ultimately validates and proves his identity, his mission, and his great love for the world. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour about noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour about 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, the time of the evening sacrifice, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out in physical and in spiritual agony. And don't don't hear this like Jesus is asking, why, 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 Lord? He knew why. He knew what was ahead of him. And he had still set his face towards that. What's he doing here? Well, one, he's, he's quoting Psalm 22, which is amazing. He's quoting Psalm 22, and he's expressing for everyone to hear the anguish that he is in as he is cut off from fellowship with the Father and bears the totality of God's wrath in our place. And some of the bystanders, verse 47, hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the, The curtain in the temple would have been about 60 feet by 30 feet. Only an act of God could rip it from the top to the bottom. And it's ripped to demonstrate that the Holy of Holies is open for business. That because of Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross, we now have access to the presence of God. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Verse 55, and there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, the bruised, broken, maimed body of Jesus. And he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. And he laid it 
in his own new tomb, which he had cut in rock. And he rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there, sitting opposite of the tomb. And everything goes quiet. Imagine what they were thinking in that moment. Imagine all of the emotions and sadness and fear and maybe even guilt. Wondering what was going to happen next, trying to remember what Jesus taught, but it was so unclear through the fog of their grief. Trying to hold on to hope, but still not getting, not fully understanding how all of this was going to fit together. I think it's important when we look at this account of the cross and ask a question, and I, I think it would have been a question that they would have asked then in the first century, and it's this, it's, it's why. Why? What was the point, Jesus? You come, you teach salvation and your coming kingdom, and then what, just to die? Why this way? Why, Jesus, did you come to die? I want us to close this morning thinking about three of those reasons. Why did Jesus come to die? I want to commend a book to you. It's called 50 Reasons That Jesus Came to Die. Uh, we're not going to do all 50 today, just three. 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die is by John Piper. It's an amazing book, short chapters, devotional, especially this time of year during Advent, it would be Fabulous to walk through even with your family. Why did Jesus come to die? Three reasons. Here's the first. First reason is this. To pay the penalty for our sins and to satisfy the just wrath of God. Jesus came to die to pay the penalty for our sins and to satisfy the just wrath of God. Walk with me through this here for a moment. So God is holy. He is holy. He is set apart. He is righteous in, in all of his ways. He's unique in all of his perfections. And he has made us to be in relationship with him. But to be in relationship with a holy God, we must be holy. And here's the thing we're not, we're sinners. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinners by nature because of the sin of Adam. We all inherit a, a sin nature. We're born in sin. But we're not just sinners by nature. We're, we're sinners by choice. We choose to willingly rebel against God. We choose to, to disobey his law on a daily basis. And our sin separates us from a holy God. And the Lord tells us in his word that the, the just right penalty for our sin, for our 
insurrection against the king is death. Death physically, spiritually, and eternally. God hates sin. And his just response to it is his holy wrath. But here's the kicker. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves that will change anything about our dire situation. But, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You're like, Nate, what in the world does propitiation mean? It means this. It's a sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God and then turns it to favor. So it's this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the sacrifice that satisfies the just wrath of God for our sins. God sent Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God to take, to absorb God's wrath in our place and to wipe away all of our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on that cross was forsaken so that we never have to be. I think it's important as we think about the cross to remember that it's my sin that nailed him to that cross. It's not just the Romans, it's not just the religious leaders, it's not just the soldiers or the jeering crowd or Pilate, it's us, it's you, it's me. My pride, my lust, my careless words, my self-reliance and worship put him there. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. But Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to die to pay the penalty for our sins and to satisfy the just wrath of God. Second reason he came to die is this, to show his great love for us. To show his great love for us. So yes, our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. But here's what's really beautiful. The father, the father showed his love by sending his son according to his perfect plan to die in our place. Romans 5.8 says, God. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only that, but the son showed his love by willingly laying down his life in our place. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. 
when we're tempted to maybe get stuck in our despair at the cost of our sin, we remember the love of Christ, who on mission from the Father willingly went to the cross as our perfect sacrifice. No one ultimately took his life. He gave it. And he gave it for his glory and for our salvation so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The last reason I want to talk about that Jesus came to die is this. He came to die to save us and to give us eternal life. He came to die to save us and to give us eternal life. John 3, 16. God so loved the world. I love the way the CSB translates this. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal there is nothing that can't be forgiven. Nothing. Nothing that isn't covered by his redeeming blood. The greatest sacrifice has been made. The penalty for our sin has been paid. Forgiveness and friendship with God for all eternity has been offered freely by grace, through faith. Jesus came to die to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. He came to die to show his great love for us. He came to die to save us and give us eternal life. So you're like, okay, Nate, like, wow, as we look at this, as we think about it, how, how should we even respond to this? Well, if you haven't placed your trust in, in Christ as Savior, I want to warn you. If you haven't done that, the wrath of God remains on you. You will face the just judgment of God for all eternity unless you trust his finished and sufficient work on the cross. How do I respond, Nate? You respond like this. Believe. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your, your worship of Things and your idolatry of, of self and turn instead towards the sufficient one and place your trust in Jesus by faith. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trust him today. You're like, okay, Nate, how do I respond to this if, if I'm a believer? I think we respond this way today to this narrative even. We remember. We remember the cost. We remember what's been done on our behalf. We remember Jesus and all of his beauty. And then we live grateful lives. And we tell others every chance that we get and then we continue to trust him day by day by day and when we're tempted 
to give in to our sin, when we're tempted to be driven to despair, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and the finished work of salvation that was accomplished on the cross. We remember. 1 Corinthians 15.3, I deliver to you what is of first importance. Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Next week, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day. You see, if Jesus remains in the grave, none of this matters. Why? Because he isn't who he claimed to be. And thankfully, we don't leave here without hope because we know the end of the story. Easter is coming. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for sending your son to live the perfect life that we are incapable of living, to die on the cross as the perfect payment for our sins and to rise again in victory over sin and death. Thank you. Thank you that we can place our trust in you for salvation. Thank you that there is hope. Thank you that we are not driven to despair at the weight of our sin because we know that you have already paid the penalty. Thank you that we can now live for your glory. Thank you that we can now battle against our sin, not from a place of defeat, but from a place of victory because of what you have already accomplished. Thank you, Lord. You are wonderful. And we love you so very much. In your precious name.